Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Park Church Podcast. I'm your host, James Lapine. And uh, on this show, it's my job to talk with well-known authors, speakers, and thinkers about the intersection of faith and day-to-day life. Um, Our guest today is Karen Swallow-Pryor. Dr. Pryor is a professor of English at Liberty University. Um, She's also the author of two books, uh, and she's written for the Washington Post and the Atlantic and Christianity Today. Christianity Today, I can't talk today. Uh, among many other publications. Um, If you're interested in uh, what faithful presence looks like, especially um, in an evangelical academic world uh, and in such a divisive cultural moment, um, I think you'll enjoy this episode. If you also want to know uh, why she uses all three names, I'm I'm hoping to dig into that at some point. So that question will finally be answered. Um, uh, let's, Let's get to the episode. Here is Dr. Pryor. Hello. Hey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, for folks such, who... Oh, go ahead. Such provocative questions already. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm really going for it. I just... Is Swallow a maiden name? Let's just get right into it. it okay, yeah. Let's get right into it. Yeah, yes, it is. And um, I'm glad you are asking about this because a lot of people um, don't know about the history of women's names. And it's actually um, very traditional. Okay. Very old-fashioned for women to um, to change their maiden name to their middle name upon marriage. Um, so think, for example, um, of Harriet Beecher Stowe. She would be a famous example. Okay. Um, and so it's a traditional approach um, to the name for a married woman, um, and it's very different from hyphenating a last name. And, and people, it's it, I had no idea when I um married in the middle of my sophomore year of college at the ripe old age of 19 <laughs> and decided to just you know to change to just add my married name on to my <laughs> my previous name i had no idea that people would find it so confusing and so <laughs> radical and and whatever i i thought i was just being traditional and a little literary as okay. well so so who taught but you I that like how did you find that out um, I mean, I read a lot when I was a kid and it just seemed like, you know, I also played this card game called authors. Okay. It's kind of like go fish, but it, the cards are, um, authors. And oh, I mean, wow. all the cool authors, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they all had three names. Yep. So it just seemed, you know, I wanted to be a writer. So I just thought I should have three names. That's great. And, uh, I, and then I didn't want to confuse my professors in the, you know, because I got married in the middle of the school year. So I just started adding my married name on to my previous uh, name. So. Okay. Okay. My sister was a guest on this uh, podcast a couple months ago, and she is Amy Lapine Peterson. So she's, uh, she's followed in your tradition as well. I, I know her. I love her. Oh, so nice. Great. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yep. Another uh, three-named author there. Okay. So, so maiden name. So in case anybody had ever wondered now that that is just put to bed, I'm glad that we could uh, get some resolution on that. Um, for, for folks who aren't familiar with you, could you give us a, a two or three minute version of, of who you are and where you've come from? Uh, well, um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm currently, um, a professor of English at Liberty university. Um, actually I've been there for 18 years. So, um, wow. I've given them the best years of my life, and <laughs> I think I'll I think I'll stay. <laughs> um, 
And before that, I mean, I grew up in the Northeast. I grew up in, in Maine and then moved to Buffalo, New York and, um, and came to Virginia when I took the job at Liberty University. And here I've, you know, I've not only taught English, but began to write for publications and write a couple of books. And um, I just, you know, as much as I am a, 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 a true born Yankee, I do think that Central Virginia is uh, heaven on earth. So <laughs> I love it here very much. <laughs> nice. And did you, you said from a young age, you had a, an inkling that you wanted to be a writer. Is, are there writers in your family or how did that come about? Do you think? Um, well, let's see. I, I'm, there is some creativity in my family, especially my, my grandfather was a musician, um, and a songwriter, but the rest of us are really not that creative. I think we're more, <laughs> uh, they're more left brain kind of people. And okay. I think I've got a little bit of both, but, um, but my, um, you know, my mom raised me reading books to me. I mean, I just fell in love with books from a young age because she read to me and I read hmm. a lot. And, um, I really am a reader first and a writer second, Okay. but, um, I did, of course, as most young girls do write a lot of bad poetry in those years. <laughs> and so, um, I did have early on think I wanted to be some kind of a creative writer, but, uh, hmm. I think I'm, I'm more analytical than creative. So I just try to kind of find my, my place and, the writing world that way. Okay. I think most good writers should be readers first, don't you? Absolutely. That's <laughs> what I tell my students every day. So <laughs> thank, thanks for affirming that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, okay, so tell me a little bit more about the move from Buffalo, New York to Central Virginia. Um, moving to Liberty specifically, I guess, you were married at this time, and so were you accepting a job and your husband was just going to figure it out when y'all got there. How did that all work out? Yeah. Um, so, um, really, let's see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went into grad school by the time I, you know, I got married in college and went straight into a PhD program in English because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> and by the time I got into that and realized sort of accidentally, um, that I wanted to teach and be a professor. Um, we both, I mean, my husband invested, um, in my education and my career. He had his, his own, um, business and he was, he was also a traveling musician. And so he was doing his thing, but we both, even before we met, both of us had fallen in love with Virginia and Maryland, the, the mid Atlantic area, because we love the record, the weather, hmm. And the countryside, we both grew up in the country. So we just decided that we would put all of our eggs into this basket <laughs> of me finishing my PhD and, um, and then hopefully finding a job somewhere in this area. Um, and it took me a lot longer than we thought it would. And by that point, you know, we had really just come to submit our lives completely to the Lord and to be open to whatever he led us. Um, and so I applied widely. We both really wanted to get out of Buffalo because, um, it's Buffalo. I mean, I yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love you, Buffalo people, <laughs> but, um, that last winter there was hell. I mean, it was really cold and feet of snow. And, uh, anyway, so when I went on the job market, you know, I applied in Christian institutions and secular institutions. I could definitely, I mean, really would have seen myself. Um, 
anywhere um and a few different geographical locations and it just the the market open i mean the job at liberty just everything fell into place and while the rest of my um classmates were having a really hard time getting jobs because the you know the english job market has not been good for a long time hmm. um i was one who got a job and i was the only christian in the program and so it actually was kind of a big deal that hmm. that i got a job as soon as i finished and so it was kind of a testimony to the lord's provision and it was just clear that he wanted us here wow so we haven't looked back <laughs> yeah that's that's cool that's a great story um Okay, so, okay, well, actually, two questions. I'll start with this one. Um, so you've been there 18 years now. Um, so as I mentioned in the intro, I think just a, a great example of um, faithful presence in an institution, uh, especially in an evangelical institution. And, and um, I think there have been, there have probably been times when um, you have disagreed with uh the, the stance that your institution took on something. So the question that I'm trying to get at is what does it look like for you to be faithfully present there? Um, even when, uh, you, you disagree with, um, a particular stance that someone else might take. Is that, did I ask that? Okay. Um, yeah, sure. I, I understand what you're asking. Okay. I mean, so for me, um, I mean, I get asked this question a lot, I okay. think. And, um, it's, it's really not that hard. And I think it's because I, you know, I did my PhD in a very liberal university, very liberal department in a liberal university, state university in a liberal state. Um, I taught during that time at various institutions, Catholic institutions, community college, hmm. business school. Hmm. Um, never in my life have I really found myself in a place where I agreed mainly with the institution or the people there. Huh. Um, the close, the closest I've come is probably Liberty university. Okay. So, okay. Um, <laughs> and I, you know, even after coming to Liberty, I did uh, some adjunct gigs at another local college. I mean, I've seen a lot in a lot of different kinds of institutions and they all have their problems. They all have their politics. Hmm. And I just, I have found, you know, in my 18 years at Liberty that, that the, you know, the, the issues and disagreements and, um, other things are, are ones I would prefer over what I've seen in other institutions. So, um, it just isn't that hard of a question for me. I mean, not, not to say it's, not, you know, I don't ever struggle with, with those questions, but I think coming from, the background that I came from, it's just, um, you know, I meet, I have conversations with Christians who seem to think this is kind of a struggle. Maybe because I grew up out, you know, I didn't, go, I, I, I'm a product entirely of secular education, even though I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I lived in a very, uh, the Northeast, Maine and New England are very, very secularized societies, very um, stoic and independent, very burnt over from, you know, the, um, it, their original religious foundings. And so in terms of my faith, I've always been an outsider. So I've never had an expectation that, I, um, of, uh, you know, being in sync with everyone. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's even often true at church, right? I mean, yeah. I see so many people who are disappointed and, 
and uh, or disgusted or fed up with the church. And it's like, I just, I'm like, I've just never been around people who thought exactly like me my whole life. So I never had that expectation. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's, that's actually where my mind was going, um, thinking about, and I don't know if it's our, our generation's approach to church. I think it's probably, well, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, I have seemed to pick up on some of like, if this, by the way, I'm just telling you, I'm not going to fall for that generation trap you just set for me. What so did I, no? Oh are, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, <laughs> my I, lips are sealed. I've seen you praise millennials on Twitter. I really appreciate that. Uh, cause I am one. So, uh, yeah, thanks for looking out for us. Yeah. <laughs> but, but there is, I think there is a flightiness at least in in our culture, I'm in Denver. Um, people move here for autonomy and freedom and the mountains and mm-hmm. just kind of get to do whatever you want. And, you know, it's a lot of post-college. I'm going to get a job in middle management to, you know, uh, pay my bills and, and then go have fun on the weekend. So there is a... I, visit, I visited a couple of years ago and, and it's very beautiful and lovely and a lot of, and a lot of pot smoking too. So. <laughs> there is that. I noticed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there is that. Yes, indeed. And a lot less crime and a lot of uh, tax money going to, uh, to public schools. So uh, there are two sides to that coin. But um, I need to ask the question, where was I even going? So I, I think there is this sense of uh, if church isn't doing exactly uh, what I want it to do for me, maybe I should look for something else. Um, and so I think it's interesting. I guess what I'm trying to hear more from you on is how have you um, remained content even when, and I guess you kind of answered it, man, you've got me, you've got me externally processing here. You're truly a professor. Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll add a little bit to it though. I mean, I, I'm going to feel like the, you know, the, I'm going to feel like the proverbial grandparent who's talking about walking uphill to school both ways or something. But I mean, the church that I grew up in in Maine, literally, okay, and I'm not that old, all right, but (laughs) it had, it had an outhouse. So growing up in this tiny country church in Maine where we had no flushable toilets at first, it was an outhouse, and then we had, you know, the big building project, we added the outhouses, and it was such a small congregation that I was, you know, I was 12 years old and having to teach the children that were younger than me. <laughs> um, I learned pretty early on that church wasn't about me. So, um, you know, and not to sound like a martyr or anything, but I think, you know, now sitting on the other end being a a professor and having been a department chair and dealing with um, not students so much as their parents hmm. um, who, you know, are really, you know, the stereotype of the helicopter parents is, is very true um, where everything is needs to be provided for them. And um, hmm. it's, you know, I don't really blame your generation. I think, I think that, uh, you know, it's just sort of the, um, the implosion of the American dream, which is, you know, it's gone a little bit too far. Hmm. So. so what do you think, um, what are, uh, legitimate criteria if you were to leave a church that you are a member of? Oh, well, uh, we did that recently. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So, um, I mean, I, you know, I, I think, I think 
leaving a church is a very, very serious decision. It took us actually a number of years hmm. to come to that decision. Um, meant uh, probably about 10 years. It took us about 10 years um, wow. to come to that decision. And the church that we uh, were attending, um, just, you know, the short answer is simply that it was, um, you know, a downtown church that once had hundreds of people and it had shrunk uh, a lot in size. And as a result of that sort of thing had cycled through a number of, of uh, pastors who didn't stay long and interim pastors. Hmm. Um, and at the point where it just um, seemed like our, you know, we were spiritually withering on the vine. It just said, you know, it was even though, you know, we didn't want to abandon ship, but it's kind of like being in the airplane when they instruct you, you know, to put your own mask on first before attempting to help someone else. Yeah. Um, it just, you know, it was a matter of our need to go to a place where we could be um, spiritually strengthened and nourished enough so that we could do the kind of ministry that, um, that God has called us to do, which is pretty, um, you know, it, I, I think we, we have to be poured into a lot in order mm. to, to do what we're doing. My, my husband's a public school teacher, so, mm. um, you know, so he has to put a lot into um, to that job and, and working with kids and so forth. Mm. So, yeah, we need to be fed quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, okay. That's helpful. I like to put your mask on before you help others. That makes sense. Um, Okay, here's here's a question. As a professor, what it's summer right now. What do you do with your summers? Oh, I just like sit around and eat bonbons. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> um, no, I'm I'm working on a book, so, okay. um, so that's yeah, that's pretty much my summer. Um, I do, you know, I do try to live a balanced life. I think um, balance is really important, and so for me, balance means. Um, because I spend so much time, you know, at the computer and in my head, um, you know, I try to put physical exercise and being outdoors as a priority. So mm. I do run and swim. Um, and then the rest of the time so far, I'm just like sitting on the couch at the, with the laptop, <laughs> reading and writing. So, yep. Yep. um, yeah, so summer for me, summer is that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I ask, like I mentioned, uh, Amy and, and her husband, Jack, both teach at Taylor University. And so he's been working on his PhD, so probably similar to you. Yeah. Um, but Amy's just kind of been gallivanting across the United States. So I didn't know if you uh, if you did sit around eating bonbons or, or what you did with your free time. Tell us. She's, she's so much smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> what can you tell us about the book? Anything? Yeah, I can tell you it's um, it's a book it's, it's going back a little bit to my first book which is um is a book about books um <laughs> although that that book is about books and my life it's more personal about the books that um that shaped my life and influenced me the most and i'm not telling that story again so this book is about <laughs> other works of literature that i love um uh, but it's viewing um the classical virtues through the lens of those books so how we how these books that I'm writing about um, teach us about um, prudence and temperance and courage and hmm. humility and diligence and a few other virtues. So, so I'm reading a lot of um, Aquinas and Aristotle and some Augustine and some other you know philosophers um, on virtue ethics and then uh, talking about these works of literature and how they can teach us ethics and virtue. Huh. So a dummy's guide to those things. 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I've never studied the virtues. I mean, we all kind of grow up hearing about the seven deadly sins and the sure. you know the virtues and so forth. I mean, I always did. We've all watched seven, right? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, so, you know, there's a sort of cultural awareness of virtues and vices, but I've never really studied them. So mm. this, this is part of why this book, writing this book is so intense for me, because I'm I'm doing so much research on the virtues themselves. And I, again, I've said before, I'm more of a reader than a writer. So, I mean, I could just sit around and, you know, I've got the I'm surrounded right now, literally by stacks of books. And I'd be happy just doing that and not writing about them. But I have this contract i'm supposed to turn in a manuscript in a few months um so i have to put some words on the page um but i just love reading about these things and learning them and i don't want to give it all away but i mean just understanding so i do want it to be sort of a a, a dummy's guy because, <laughs> because i'm a I, I was a dummy about the virtues and so just even understanding what the virtues are and what they aren't mm -hmm. and, and how uh, what their excess or d deficiency looks like. It's mm. very, very instructive and practical, I mm. think. And then, mm. of course, combining that with with how we see them in literature, hopefully, ultimately, we can apply all that to our lives. That's sure. Point. Sure. That sounds great. Um, let's let's talk about your other two books. I have a question uh, from a listener about Fierce Convictions, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, and then I could ask this question. Okay, sure. So, um, Fierce Convictions is a biography of the 18th, 19th century abolitionist, reformer, and writer, Hannah Moore. And um, I actually did my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation on Hannah Moore, because my area of expertise is the 18th century and the English novel, and she was a woman who wrote a lot of things, but just actually wrote one novel. And so my dissertation explored the role of her novel in the history of the development of the novel in 18th and 19th century England. Um, so this Fierce Convictions is um, just a broader look at her life um, and more of a, a Christian understanding of her life than my dissertation was. Uh, because she was an evangelical, she was a great friend of William Wilberforce. Um, a lot of people, you know, she's been kind of forgotten, so a lot of people haven't heard of her. But um, but we do know about William Wilberforce and um, his successful campaign to abolish the slave trade in England, and she um, she helped him. So um, when I finished my dissertation, one of uh, the professors who wasn't officially on my committee, but he was just um, a supporter of mine actually it's interesting he was an agnostic not even a believer but um he just loved my work on hannah moore so much he told me that i should someday write a popular biography of her and so it took me a long time but i did and and fierce convictions is that hmm. cool that biography. okay well one of our listeners really enjoyed it and he has sort of a long question but i'm going to read the whole thing um okay. so he says in your book fierce convictions you describe hannah moore as a woman who was uncomfortable dressing up to the current fashion because it felt lavish and self-focused. But the really interesting thing is that she also refused to dress plainly because doing so would also cause her to stand out from the crowd, but in a different way. Um, in many ways, I respect and admire such a humble ethic, but it seems pretty out of reach in our expressivist uh, individualist age. A marketer's entire job, for example, is to brand a company so that they stand out from the pack and thus so that a consumer gives that company their business. Good art, as another example, tends to play on people's expectations in subtle yet surprising ways. 
The artist wants to say something that hasn't already been said a thousand times before. And then most directly, the question of clothing fashion is uh, in many ways still the same as in Moore's day. Um, so here's his question. What are we to learn from Moore's humble ethic about fashion and how would we pursue the same virtue? That's a great question. Um, so, uh, I have smart listeners. In, <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> so in, there's one important difference between Moore's age and ours that I think will help us answer the question. And that this is another reason why her life is so interesting because her life exactly straddles the neoclassical age and the early Victorian age, which are, and, and the, the period in the middle is the romantic age. And those three ages are like, um, some of the most, they, in a short span of years, some of the most radical pendulum shifts that you can see in, in culture in terms of aesthetics and ethics and, um, and philosophy and theology. And so Hannah Moore, you know, she, she lived in all of those ages and, but then she really identified most with the neoclassical age that she was born in. Um, and so the Augustan age was an age that looked to the past. It's called neoclassical because it looked to the classical hmm. age of, you know, ancient Greece and Rome. And so that was an age that very much valued not originality and creativity, but tradition and imitation hmm. as opposed to something new and better and creative and original. Um, and so the romantics are, you know, they, they were the pendulum swing the other way. They're hmm. the ones who began to value what was original and new and standing out and unique and, and so forth. And so part of Hannah Moore's sensibilities comes from that age that actually valued imitating tradition mm -hmm. so in some so, so in that respect she does reflect the values of her age and 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 she was actually adhering to um what would speak to those in power of her age so all of the people who empowered her all the men who empowered her like dr samuel johnson and um david garrick the um theater manager in in london they have the same kind of ethic so um, so she was in a sense reflecting that. Hmm. And so in that sense, I think she was being prudent. Mm -hmm. I'm writing about prudence right now. I mean, she, she knew how to speak to her age. And even though some parts of her age were going, you know, were all about the fashion and, and then the new, um, she was rooted in and, um, had a faithful presence among people and ideas that, um, that depended more on tradition. Mm. Does that make sense? So yeah. So, so she, we, you know, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. She dressed for the job she wanted. Oh, you were, oh. So now it took me so long to say all that. <laughs> yes. 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 <laughs> okay. <all laughs> thank right. you for thank you for simplifying it. <laughs> you can put that in your dummies guide if you want. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah this is what I, <laughs> Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. No, that is helpful, I think. Wow. No, no, I mean, you want to, if there's a culture that you're trying to affect, uh, it probably doesn't hurt to, to mirror it uh, in all sorts of ways, including what you wear. So that makes sense. Right, right, yeah. right. But 
but I mean, it, and it's not just, right. It, so even as the questioner said, it's not just fashion, but fashion also reflecting other, you know, ethics and sensibilities. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so we today, we have to figure out too, um, what we need to do to be faithfully present in our culture and to make a difference. And sometimes that is going to be to, you know, to adapt this fashion or, or whatever. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, where the line becomes crossed into compromise, I, I don't know. But obviously, I mean, it's just a matter of being effective and speaking to the culture that we're called to speak to. Sure. I had a friend, or I have a friend who had gauges in his ears, and when he became a financial planner, he got those filled in. There you go. <laughs> because you actually, that, that, that look doesn't make sense in that world. So anyway, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and I didn't get my first tattoo until after I had the job. <laughs> well, I got my uh, first tattoo when I worked from home and just decided if there's ever a job that won't hire me uh, because I have tattoos, I probably don't want to take that job anyway. I was, there, I was 20, 22 when I made that decision. So who knows if it'll come back to bite me, but <laughs> I'm going to stick with it. Um, Okay. You have to now. We have to. Now. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I hear there is removal surgery, but it's painful and expensive. So I, I think I'm good. Um, okay. Let's do a couple rapid fire questions here at the end. At least I think they will be rapid fire. It's okay. If you need to take some time to, <laughs> to think about it. After my, after my last answer, you're a little bit doubtful. But <laughs> um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to start with one that might be tough, but w- if you had to pick, three classics for everyone to read what would you pick oh this is easy I oh mean, nice search question that was hard okay <laughs> um yeah you know just pick three but um and, well and this but but no they are uh, so um and these are all ones that i talk about in my first book book literature and the soul of me because so I, i've thought about this question a lot the three that are sort of the most influential books but i'll, I'll pick ones that i think are just more okay all right, it is a little bit harder. <laughs> okay, all right. So, um, Madame Bovary by Gustave Flaubert. Okay. And the reason I think that book is really important for everyone to read is because I think that, that one of the worldviews that affects our culture more than any other today is romanticism. And I think it's, um, you know, it has some good in it, but mostly bad. Um, and so I think there's a cure for romanticism in that novel. And it's just a... a it's an excruciating story. I, I, I love dark stories anyway, and it's just really great. And um, another one that um, this just, I think everyone should read is Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were exposed to it at an early age and didn't get it or didn't like it, please try it again. Uh, but give yourself time uh, because it's just something, it's just at the very sentence level and the word level, Dickens is so great. And then um, the other one would be Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. It's just, I think, um, a classic work that translates so well across time and across gender. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a story of a modern individual, but within a Christian worldview. And so I think it just combines everything that would, you know, that still speaks to us today in our cultural context. Perfect. 
There you go. Marching orders for our, for our listeners. They're the three that you need to get. I haven't read uh, Madame Bovary, so maybe I'll start with that one. Um, okay, next rapid-fire question. What's the best thing that you've watched recently? It can be a, a TV show or a movie or a YouTube video or whatever. Okay, well, I don't watch YouTube videos. Um, okay, so, and, all right, well, I'll just, all right, this was last year, which is relatively recent for me. All right, two, okay. <laughs> this is not so rapid fire. Uh, oh, Broadchurch. Oh, yeah. Broadchurch. Yeah. Is, I, I mean, bro, actually, Broadchurch has ruined me for television and Netflix and everything because the standard is, is set such a high standard. It's like mm-hmm. absolutely the best thing I've ever watched on television and mm. it's just so good it stayed with me for weeks i couldn't even get over it mm. so it's so excellent and then i just i really did in terms of film i loved get out oh get it was out. great so, yeah it's yes. so smart and so so rich and so important and current so absolutely excellent choices i think i've i think i've seen uh, tim keller tweet about Broadchurch as well my wife and i watched yeah. it a little while ago but it, yeah it's it's fantastic um, okay. What's the nerdiest thing that you're into right now? The thing that you're like, you kind of don't want to tell us cause it's a little embarrassing. Oh, um, studying about like virtues nerd? and vices. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's, I, I think so, but I already told you about that. So I don't know if there's something that's like more embarrassing. Yeah. Um, studying virtues and vices, nerdy. I'm I don't, that, that can be it. Know. That's okay. That can, okay, yeah. yeah. Just reading a lot of philosophy and Aquinas and Aristotle and <laughs> the Nicomachean Ethics. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it's, Ni- right, it's right here. I'm looking at it right now. Nicomachean so. Ethics. That takes the cake. Um, yeah. Okay. I thought about asking this in the non-rapid-fire portion, so if it's too big of a question, we can, we can skip it. But because you see... Um, a new crop of students every year. And then you see people going through the all four years. Um, I'm just interested on your insight and, and, uh, the really good stuff that you're seeing. And then maybe some of the concerning things that you're seeing. Okay. Like in this generation of students. Yep. I snuck a generation question in. Yeah, you did. I'm taking the bait. Um, so, well, I think, you know, the negative thing is, is just kind of what I've said already is just, that, um, and it's not the, the fault of this generation, but just um, that so many of their parents have raised them with this, I, you know, with this sort of protective, um, you know, I can do anything. You can, <laughs> that's mm. great Saturday Night Live skip. That's a great thing to YouTube. I haven't seen that. <laughs> um, you can do anything or whatever. Um, and, and this, yeah, you know, the sense that um, even when it comes to work, that you're good, you, that your first, jo- you know, that you're just, you're owed a good job with great hours mm. and, you know, a lot of time off or, or whatever, and you, that you don't have to tow any company lines. Um, that's a great, you know, I think that's a, we've, there's a great disservice that's being done to this generation, uh, not learning um, kind of about the, or expecting the dues that have to be pay, paid and the work that has to be, um, the foundation that has to be laid to mm-hmm. get to a place of where you have some, freedom and authority Mm -hmm. um but the positive thing is um you know there's a um i i think there's a a realism there um which for me that's a really important word because i just 
um, dissed on romanticism. I think romanticism is, is poisonous. And I think for bad reasons, I think this generation has a sense of realism because they've seen and lived through so many negative things. And I don't mean just like politically and globally, but I just mean even in terms of the breakup of their own families and hmm. uh, and and the kind of uh, you know the, the the infidelity that is just part of their lives that they've witnessed growing up. And hmm. um, so I think that they're perhaps overly cautious, but it comes out of a sense of realism that they want to do things right and they they want to do things better in terms of relationships and and um, social um, justice and other things. They, they want to do better than the previous generation. And as long as that can be tempered, you know, approached mm. in a more realistic way, I think there's a lot of hope and potential for hmm. positive change that this generation has been. Yeah, that's really good. And I think our, our ditches are either romanticism or uh, cynicism. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But right. if we can right. have sort of a pure realism and stay rooted in that i think you're right that's where the good stuff is yeah absolutely <laughs> well thanks um okay what's the best meal that you've had recently oh, um, the best meal i've had recently i've been you know i've been in a lot writing so it's um <laughs> <laughs> ramen and cheerios yeah well yeah well no i try to eat healthfully but it's not. um let's see you know, I don't think I've had that many good meals lately. I've, and I've been out, too, but it just hasn't been that great. Mm, um, bummer. Yeah, yeah. So, but I'm, okay. a, I'm a big seafood person. So, yeah. um, the best meal I had recently was at a wedding last week. It was my husband's meal. I got the wrong one. He got the salmon. It was really good. I <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was kind of him. <laughs> I got the stuffed eggplant. I don't know why I thought that sounded good. But. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, last one. Uh, I steal this one from Tim Ferriss. Uh, he asks his guest, if you could put a billboard anywhere in the world, where would you put it and what would it say? Oh, my goodness. That's a good and hard question. Yeah. A billboard anywhere in the world, where and what would it say? Um, I would put a billboard in my town that says, please spay and neuter your pets. <laughs> I really would. I love it. I mean, uh, the animal shelters across the country would not be filled yeah. as they are if people would spay and neuter their pets. Mm -hmm. So please do. And if you can't afford it, there are clinics that will do it, and there are no excuses not to. So... Thank you, everyone. Amen. Amen. I can get Stay behind that one. Your pets. You, do you have a dog? I have two dogs. Two dogs. What do you have? Two dogs, six chickens, and a horse. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> the, what, the chickens are not spayed, but I don't have any roosters, and they're in a coop, so there you they're go. good. Okay. Everyone else is taken care of. Yeah. Well, Denver's a big dog town, so tell us about your dogs. Uh, well, anybody who follows me on Facebook knows all about my dogs, okay. Ruby and Eva. Okay. Uh, Ruby, Ruby is a German short-haired pointer, Ooh. and Eva is a Weimaraner, and they are just the, the cat's pajamas as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. They're, by, they're sleeping beside me right now. Aww. Wherever I am, they are. I love it. 
Um, okay, well, we'll let you get back to your reading, but thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, and that does it for our interview with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, and now you know uh, why she uses the three names. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I'd always love to hear your feedback, so you can email me, james at parkchurchdenver.org, or find me on Twitter at, uh, at James Lepine, L-E-P-I-N-E. Um, yeah, we'd love to, to always get your feedback on the show. Uh, we'll be back next month with another interview. Until then, uh, take care.